podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. All right, Le Grandes Equipes, the champions, is back. We've got the final last 16 ties to get out of the way. So we're going to make a return in the 76th episode of the What If Football podcast to the Champions League. To a new format, to a new millennium, in fact. It's the 1999-2000 season. Can Manchester United retain? Who will win the Champions League? Let's find out and get stuck straight in. And if you do like nostalgic takes on the Champions League, then I suppose the place to be is our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash whatifootball, where from £1 a month, you can get access to great games and head-to-head podcasts that will be released this week. Yesterday, we looked at a fantastic quarterfinal from Champions League history, one of the greatest comebacks in Champions League history, Deportivo versus Milan from 2004. We've also got a comparing and contrasting exercise to do later on today, or depending on when you receive this podcast. Wednesday afternoon, it will be available on our Patreon page. We're going to compare the Real Madrid team of the 1950s, which won five European Cups, to the Barcelona dream team of Johan Cruyff that won their very first European Cup in 92. Bit of a spicy El Clasico flavour to that one. And there is here today Spanish domination, perhaps, in the first Champions League winner of the new millennium. But let's run down the contenders. We've got a new format change, of course, which means we have got... Two group stages, which isn't good for really anybody but the audience. And as the audience, we should probably take responsibility for this with our uh, with our doomed pattern of watching incessant amounts of football, which will be realised again by FIFA in a couple of years with the old Swiss model. And um, we should probably start campaigning to get that nipped in the bud but regardless it seems like the Super League will happen regardless. Anyway we're back to 1999 Manchester United were the favourites they were the holders and there were no transfer activity they had just come off a the greatest season in English football history to my mind but then again I am a Manchester United supporter so of course I'm going to think that anyway. They'd been unbeaten throughout 1999 and that would continue into October coming off the 5-0 pasting that they took at Stamford Bridge and then a loss courtesy of the old William Gallas in Marseille, which which did put Marseille top after four match days. Um, it quickly climbed down um, United Eads to 2-1 wins in Zagreb against Croatia Zagreb, still called that, and Sturm Graz. And um, those two teams would take wins off one another in the third and fourth match days, which, which really took the edge off the group. Cabadiawara's late leveller in a 2-2 draw with Croatia Zagreb, enough to send them their place through to the last 16 group phase. Meanwhile, Manchester United had already easily qualified. Meanwhile, it was a return for Louis van Gaal and his army at the Champions League once more. Yes, he was he was back in the business and back as, um, well, still Barcelona manager here, as we see it in 1999. Had a crack off the uh, tournament last year, immensely tough group, Bayern Munich, Manchester United, two finalists there. Here we've got another pretty strong group, Arsenal, Fiorentina. And let's be honest, a trip to Stockholm inferred that that might be quite tough too. The the, the AIK goal was unbelievable. What a stupendous little chip to open the scoring from the uh, Stockholm side there. But ultimately... Barcelona won out with two late goals in the last four minutes. This, of course, for Fiorentina in Florence, was the uh, the season that really kept Batigol in the city for that bit longer. The promise of Champions League football kept him in check and he would score his first goal 
for Fiorentina in the Champions League in a in a four two loss at the camp now, but he would be very, very crucial by the end of it. Um, neither Fiorentina or Arsenal, really, the other team in the group um, who had designs on getting through, could really get going. Although Batigol and Enrico Chiesa burst into life in a 3-0 win over the uh, Swedes, AIK. Um, crucially, though, it would come to uh, come down to Wembley again for Arsenal. Arsenal still not allowed to play at Highbury. Both were on five points. It was 0-0 in Florence on the uh, on the opening match day. And an e- a win either side qualified them on head-to-head alongside Barcelona, who had simply just romped to the uh, to the top spot there. And, and the iconic goal, really, although... There's probably two iconic goals in this group. Both belong to uh, Fiorentina more and the other one in a second. But the the more crucial goal to the, the outcome of this group, group was Gabriel Batistuta at an angle at Wembley. 15 minutes to go, slams it beyond David Seaman. He wheels away in that absolutely sublime Toyota Fiorentina kit. One for the bucket list, definitely. Um, had shirt prices not rocketed up recently. Anyway... That qualifies Fiorentina on head-to-head. Showed that both Barcelona, Barcelona especially, but Fiorentina were dangerous. Um, they met in the final match day where, of course, we had that Mauro Bressan overhead kick. And um, if you've listened to the Obscure Footballer podcast um, or episodes recently, we've uh, detailed his um, best goal in Champions League history for me. Or there or thereabouts, um, depending on where you lie on the whole Zidane and Gareth Bale overhead kicks as well. But... That's for another day. That's for another day. Um, Barcelona, um, their trips to Wembley and um, against AIK and at home to Fiorentina, they looked absolutely unstoppable, of course. Spiritual home being Wembley, where they won their first European Cup. Final here, though, in 2000, like this year, is being held at the Stade de France. Will they be there or will it be Real Madrid? Now, Real are looking to bounce back and they encountered the... um, the perennial tough to beat Champions League team, of course, Olympiacos. They needed an 80th minute equaliser from Raul to escape Athens. But thankfully for Real Madrid, they, they then put on the afterburners. They put seven beyond Mulder and uh, Porto there. Porto were, were getting going quite well. The young Deco um, won them a game in Norway against Mulder. And of course, Mario Jardel was in the goals, as always, with Porto here. And his double puts. Um, Against Real, put them top with two games to go. So they're going at home against Real Madrid, beating them. And Porto really showing a bit of a knack that they can get through these group phases, um, going a bit under the radar as they have done in the past few episodes of this podcast. Certainly, Deco and Jardel combined in a in a three one win over Mulder, and they could top the group if they matched Real Madrid's result on the final match day. Um, Christian Carambo, as he had done numerous times for Real Madrid in this competition, comes up trumps with a, a crucial goal in a 1-0 win in Mulder. But it was that fawn in the side that they call Stelios Giannacopoulos, who's um, put up in so many hopes in this uh, series in the past. He scores for Olympiacos, therefore Porto relinquished top spot, finished second, and uh, Real Madrid going to a group containing... Bayern Munich, who were among the favourites. They'd lost Lota Mateus to, or would lose Lota Mateus to America midway through the season, but they'd spent big. Key amongst those, though, particularly in the Champions League this season, was Paolo Sergio. Um, scored innumerable, innumerable um, vital goals in this campaign. Bayern, they shared the group with PSV, Valencia, Rangers in the group. So three dark horses there that could be all sort of banana skins of matches, um, particularly spelled out in a pair of 1-1 draws with Valencia, a bit like um, the games against Manchester United the previous year, where Bayern weren't completely at the races. You know, they got another gear to step into, really. And um, again, it's Giovanni Elber, it's Carsten Janker, it's Stefan Effenberg. Really, the crux of their attacking attacking play hasn't changed all that much from the previous year, when they, got, of course, got to the final Paolo Sergio, though, he's he kicks them onto another gear again and again and again in this tournament. You've got him scoring a winner against PSV. You've also got a crucial goal from uh, Michael Tarnat, uh, which is pretty pretty um, fortuitous equaliser at Ibrox, really, a deflected free kick. Meanwhile, for PSV, you've got, um, we haven't mentioned it too much, but in the past few episodes, Ruud van Nistelrooy has been banging in the goals and this season is no different. It's only a matter of time before he's signed to uh, 
to a major European league, you'd think anyway. Um, he scores goals that mean Bayern Munich lose in Eindhoven, and it also means that that Bayern were third going into their match against Rangers. Valencia, after two wins against Rangers, only needed a point. Claudio Lopez with um, an absolutely sublime goal, almost as good as Bressan's overhead kick. It's over the shoulder. Can't, can't possibly see it. And he arches his leg in ways that would shatter my knees. Anyway, I know that. <laughs> my knees are absolutely shot. But anyway, and it volley and it's hit so crisply um, and that's the goal that sends Valencia through and um, apt anyway. Meanwhile, Bayern Munich sneak through thanks to Thomas Strun's penalty for Bayern, which wins them, qualifies them and they will meet Real Madrid in the second group phase. Now let's get on to the darker horses of this European Cup. Lazio, they'd never played in the European Cup before, but in the past few years, they've been creeping up that ladder like we'd seen PSG do, like we've seen um, Bayern Munich do, when they win those secondary competitions in Europe, UEFA Cups, Cup Winners' Cups, and then get through quite deep into the uh, Champions League tournaments. Lazio, no different. 1997 UEFA Cup final, lost 3-0 to Inter Milan, um, thanks to um, a certain... At 98, rather, thanks to a certain Ronaldo. 99, they win the Cup Winners' Cup, the final Cup Winners' Cup, beating Mallorca 2-1 on that one. They just wrapped up the Super Cup as well against Manchester United, Marcelo Salas. Superb in that one. And Salas was... He was undeniable in this in this competition this season. He, his goal wins the contest for Lazio at home to Dynamo Kiev, let's be honest. If there's any team in this group with Bayer Leverkusen in there who's got the knack in Champions League football, it's Dynamo Kiev. But Dynamo have lost Andrei Shevchenko to AC Milan. So you've got the, a bit of a hole. Sergei Rebrov is still banging in the goals as he always does, always would do. So it's probably a, a case of missing Shevchenko while Salas really at the peak of his powers for Lazio. His goals sends them through. You've got Ulf Kirsten and Oliver Nervel were prolific for Bayer Leverkusen and would score in Kiev, but it was in a losing effort. And that game really does change the entire fabric of this group. Meanwhile, Lazio's pair of 4-0 wins over the group's whipping boys, Maribor, means that their point against Leverkusen is enough to qualify. Leaves things on a knife edge going into the final game. You've got Dynamo Kiev on seven points. You've got Leverkusen on six. Lazio would um, travel to Kiev and they'd win. It means that Leverkusen just need a, need to beat Maribor. Maribor have been nowhere, absolutely nowhere in this group. And to be fair, expectedly so. Slovenian outfit to routinely do well in the leagues domestically, but can't really live up to that continentally. One of those sort of nations, really, that um, never really produces a a dark horse that gets to a, a last 16 or troubles a group stage here. Um, don't do here. Um, the Dynamo Kiev party, despite Shevchenko's absence, continues though. Um, Leverkusen couldn't beat Maribor. Another semi-final that does look unlikely, thanks in part to the format change. Got to go through another group phase, which is grueling at the best of times, despite having a break halfway through. And of course, I think there's a much bigger crop of teams in that. Now Now it's obviously bigger crop in terms of 24 to 32 teams, but also the the quality of the teams. We have more teams from Italy, Germany, England, Spain. It, it's going to be a lot harder going forward for Dynamo Kiev as opposed to when it was only one or two champions and maybe you know second place from certain nations. And rather Eastern Europe and Central Europe was more represented and that's just the way unfortunately that European football has gone ever since really 1996 where you see these format changes that constantly take from Eastern Europe take from places where they don't have as much financial clout you might say um definitely around this time is beginning to um bear fruit really AC Milan, they were back in the big time after returning to the top of Serie A in 1999. Get a steady point at home to, um, well, away at Stamford Bridge to Chelsea, who were uh, making their long-awaited debut in the Champions League. Meanwhile, Shevchenko, he's in the goals for his new club against Galatasaray, but neither Herta, Galatasaray, neither Milan really could string any amount of wins together. And the team that would finally get on the board in terms of consecutive wins Chelsea winning home and away against Galatasaray 
all but confirms them through just because of those goals, really. And Dennis Wise's late equaliser in Milan, coupled with Galatasaray's 4-1 win in Berlin, has Chelsea on eight points, Hertha on eight points, Milan on six, Galatasaray on four. And it means that with Hertha playing Chelsea, if those two teams drew, thanks to their head-to-head against Milan, it would be uh, Milan out of the running already. And from a team that you'd expect with all the rich history that they have, and just coming back to the uh, back to the four that they would um, they would trouble, but it wouldn't be until we see Carlo Ancelotti in the dugout in a couple of years' time. Um, we've got a few more years to wait for uh, peak Milan, I think. Meanwhile, it would be Didier Deschamps and Albert Ferrer. Their goals would ensure Chelsea's top spot, but it's um, it put her to Berlin at risk, obviously. Chelsea beating them. Milan were winning 2-1, seemingly sailing through. But then, but then, Galatasaray, they couldn't go through, but they still had um, UEFA Cup qualification to kind of fight for, really. You've got um, Hakan Suker in the 87th minute, Umut Davala in stoppage time with a penalty. Those two goals changed the entirety of the season in both UEFA Cup and Champions League. Galatasaray win 3-2, leapfrog Milan into the UEFA Cup. Galatasaray then go and win the UEFA Cup. Milan looks as though they're going through to the last 16. They don't hurt a Berlin make-up. That and the whole fabric of European football really changes. And in the last two groups we'll discuss pretty much really anybody's. You've got Bordeaux, Spartak, Moscow, Willem Twey and Sparta Prague in um, one group. And the two dark horses really in... Prague, Spartak and Sparta had a bit of um, experience under their belt. You see the expansion here telling with Willem Twey and Bordeaux. Sort of secondary underlings, really, from a big, bigger European leagues who don't necessarily have all that much experience. But in Bordeaux, you've got Sylvain Wiltor, you've got Johan Makoud scoring goals that were so vital in wins over 2-2-1 wins over Spartak Moscow, absolutely crucial. And this is where you see the Champions League become a bit of a big shop window. Will Tarr would be in the Premier League within 24 months. You see it with Ruud van Nistelrooy. He'd be in the Premier League within 24 months. It's also a shame it wouldn't happen for a Mario Jardel, or at least a peak Mario Jardel. He would make Bolton squad, wouldn't he? But a little bit too late. Or a, or a Harold Bratback, even a Rushfeld of uh, Rosenborg fame. We wouldn't see this time, unfortunately. Um, Zlatko Zahavic from last time round is in the goals again this time, but not as prolific. All these sort of players who, uh, unfortunately, wouldn't make it across to the Premier League. Perhaps um, right place at the wrong time, really. Meanwhile, you've got Sparta Prague's eight goals against Willem Twey and draws between Bordeaux and Sparta. Qualify them on match day five. It's a fairly simple um, group there for those. And Bordeaux kind of look dangerous, but you think they'll be one of those teams where first group stage, they look good, get found out in the second group phase. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll find out after the break. But first, we've got to tackle Group C, which has the 1997 winners, Borussia Dortmund, which infers why this group was uh, on paper looks quite weak because Dortmund have fallen really in the past three years. But we do have, we do have Rosenborg. We've they've lost Bratback, and which we detailed last time. They lost Rushfeld now as well. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have don't have our two boys from Rosenborg. Meanwhile, you got Bo Vista who were who were new to this Champions League game, and to be fair, looked it shipped six in the first two games. Feyenoord hadn't. Um, hadn't really impressed in their in their sort of dalliances with the Champions League recently when we get to the group phases course eliminations by Manchester United by Newcastle etc Rosenborg though they were absolutely flying absolutely flying again 3-0 winners in Dortmund and they topped the group going into the fifth match they already qualified of course on eight points which is all it took apparently and um, that's because of numerous draws Dortmund, Feyenoord, Boa Vista, of course. Feyenoord completing Juventus's trick from last time, drawing the first five um, thanks to Von Vossen's equaliser in Dortmund and um, would, won, would win against Boa Vista on the final match day. But Rosenborg are qualified as group winners and I would say that they are probably the perennial provincial Champions League team at least of the 90s anyway. I mean, their exploits, for example, allowed for two Norwegian teams in the Champions League in this season that we're discussing. I don't think that's ever going to happen ever again. I don't think it, it 
it will happen anywhere in the future as we move on from 2000 here. Um, It's the same as you move through sort of eras. You do get some teams affecting change and some teams allowing some of their, you know, countrymen to join them in the Champions League, perhaps Shakhtar, although perhaps you could could say that they got a little bit too good. Um, There was a lot of Ukrainian influence in the UEFA Cup in that 2009-10 season where the... uh, or rather the 2008-9 season, rather, when they when they won that trophy. I think that almost makes Shakhtar a bit too good. Uh, discussing Olympiakos then, um, I don't know if the Greek Super League's a bit too a bit too prevalent, like a Turkish one, where you've got teams who are notoriously hard to beat. I wouldn't call them sort of a provincial Champions League club perennially anyway. I think, he's a, I think of a Abate Borisov and Apoel Nicosia, who we've seen recently or at least in the 2010s, FC Basel up until recently as well, who always win their Champions League group, who always win their league rather, sometimes get through the Champions League group, sometimes don't. I'm thinking now we're looking at Salzburg, but I mean, an Austrian Bundesliga, I think that might be becoming a little bit too, a little bit too close to German football and obviously the afterglow of that. So, I mean, is that, is that potentially one? Um, we'll, we'll see, won't we, in the future, whether or not Austrian football will rise again. I mean, Sturm Graz were the uh, predecessor to them in Austria, wouldn't it really? Um, regardless, Feyenoord, they got the point they needed on the final match day there through alongside Rosenborg. And we've got 16 teams left. We'll check out who will win alongside the knockout phase, of course, who will win the 1999-2000 Champions League after this short break. Right, so we've got some sorting out to do. We've got the second group phase here. We've cut the field down in half from 32 to 16, where in previous years you cut it straight down more brutally, I'd say, from uh, 24 to to eight, and um, I would say heading into 2024's format change, we really don't know how good we've got it with the current format, which has stayed intact from 2004 to uh, so it's lasted a generation, hasn't it? And um, that's probably that's the second longest format since obviously the European Cup from 55 to would be 1990 when they changed it to two preliminary rounds and a eight-team group stage. Um, but yeah, this is. This is the world we live in now, at least for the next three years, at least next three tournaments, yes. Um, the second round group stage, grueling on all all players, all shapes and sizes from all teams, really. You've got to play a minimum of, let's work it out, 12 group stage games, four two-legged knockout games, and then another one, the final, then if you're going to win it, you've got to play 17 games of football to win the Champions League. Now, teams... Nowadays, don't like to go into the Europa League, although they've changed it this year, thank God. Um, you don't want to play that because it means around 17 games of football to win a tournament you're not really invested in. Um, obviously, teams would be more invested in this. Um, and that's just the way UEFA was dealing around this time. Um, we've got in the best form, far and away, has to be said, Barcelona. In terms of teams who've got another gear to slide into, Manchester United definitely, Real Madrid probably, Bayern Munich almost definitely the way they only just sneak through into the uh, into the last 16 group phase. In terms of springing a surprise, I wouldn't say Bordeaux, but I would say Marseille, Fiorentina look good, especially with Batigol, with, with uh, Rui Costa, with Enrico Chiesa all competing as that tandem there. Rosenborg, I mean, come on, we've got to support Rosenborg, haven't we? Um, Porto, the, they do go under the wire, under the radar, really. More than capable of getting through this, causing a bit of an upset in the quarterfinals. Why not? Um, only a few years removed from Jose Mourinho, um, but uh, we'll get to him another time. So let's look at the holders first. Manchester United, they got off to an absolute torrid start in Florence. Batty goal at a rowdy Frankie. Scores the first goal. Um, pretty simple 2-0 win against Fiorentina. I remember being allowed to stay up and watch this late as a um, as a young. I would have been... I would have been... Oh, it splits into... The, the second group stage splits after match day two, so I would have still been six. I was allowed to stay up for this one. Um, didn't like watching it, obviously, apparently, because we lost 2-0 being a Manchester United fan. But Man United bounced back 3-0 win over Valencia. Now Valencia are trading 3 nils. They hammer Bordeaux, which I said, as soon as Bordeaux come up against a uh, decent team, they would uh, flounder, and they do here. And 
Their first goal comes in match day four, uh, two two defeats to, to Manchester United. United kind of like the first phase, really. Still got another gear to go into the the winning games two one fairly comfortably with that. We do let go of games in the in the early instances. A Mark Bosnich error lets them uh, concede against. Bordeaux, you've got a, an absolutely incredible goal um, that Fiorentina scored first at Old Trafford um, from, obviously, who else but uh, Batty goal there. Um, but by the end, you've got Andy Cole, Dwight York finally firing as they would do the previous season. Andy Cole, they seem to be in like an overhead kick competition. Andy Cole must have scored about four or five of those this season. And meanwhile, Roy Keane is a bit of a goal machine. I think he would be their top goal scorer this season. Um, this season that we're covering, he seems to score incredibly important goals, enormous goals as well. Um, did so the previous season as well, Juventus, Bayern Munich um, in the group stage as well to help them through. So without that, the treble doesn't happen. This perhaps doesn't happen either. But uh, of course, Roy Keane, all encompassing, all important for United around this time as ever. And that, the win against Fiorentina at home confirms United as top Clicking into gear a little bit now. Um, they just need to avoid a four-goal defeat at Mestaya. Um, and obviously they do the draw itself. Um, have them through. They've got undeniable talent. But the, for me, going through in the quarterfinals, I've probably got one of the weaker teams. Um, and let's be honest, they wouldn't have been in the quarterfinals had Fiorentina not bottled a 3-1 lead over Bordeaux. Two late Bordeaux goals there. See, see Valencia through instead of Fiorentina. So we would have had a very, very different um, quarterfinal feel as we move through the, the semifinal final of this tournament, of course. Now, Group C. Group C was probably one of the low-key, trickiest groups in Champions League history. You've got the huge names. You've got Bayern Munich punished for finishing second by meeting Real Madrid. You've got the experienced provincial team Dynamo Kiev got to a semi-final last year Rosenborg we all know the qualities of Rosenborg even without Rushfeld, even without Bratback could be probably the most apt group for this podcast really and one that um, with today's eyes I would have loved to have seen back in 2000 but ultimately um, coverage wasn't what it is nowadays unfortunately and unfortunately Rosenborg's only point comes in a 1-1 draw against Bayern Munich in the first match day. And um, Paolo Sergio, who we spoke about in the first in the first segment there, comes to the rescue again. Comes to the rescue again. Helps them helps Bayern Munich beat Dynamo Kiev. For Dynamo Kiev it's it's hard luck really. It talks about the missing Shevchenko, but you'll come up against Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, teams that they met in the quarterfinals, semifinals of the previous season, and it's all really, really slender, slender losses. 2-1 against Real Madrid, defeat. 2-1 against Bayern Munich, defeat. They turn that into wins against Rosenborg. It still has to be said that Sergei Rebrov is still firing, um, but the the performances really for the group stage, and I'd, I'd venture out to say the performances of the entire competition this season, the best ones come from Bayern Munich in the third and fourth match day. Real Madrid coming up 4-2 against Real Madrid in the Bernabeu, which is... Wildly impressive. Nobody scores four goals at the Bernabeu in this time, in Champions League anyway. They win 4-1 at, at the Olympia Stadion, which sounds more impressive, but they, they sneak a couple of late goals in. It's one of those where Real Madrid are going for the going for the, uh, the equaliser, ship two goals at the end, which is fair enough. But to score eight goals over Real Madrid, over what is essentially two legs of football, has that ever been done? I'm sure someone will uh, be able to point me towards an example there, but I'm not sure I can remember one. Certainly not recently anyway. Nonetheless, a win against Dynamo Kiev would put Real Madrid through, but in 1999, 2000, they can't. They couldn't in the quarterfinals last year when they were dumped out to Dynamo Kiev this time. They can't, although it's not as terminal. Roberto Carlos salvages a point there. Only delays the inevitable. A win in Trondheim sees, sees Real Madrid through Raul's early goal. Joins Bayern in the uh, in the quarterfinals. And Bayern's little glimpse there against Real Madrid shows that they're probably along the front runners alongside Barcelona, really moving into contendership after what was a pretty sticky first group stage. Real Madrid, you still have that feeling, a bit like Man United, that they're still got on, they've still got another gear or two to to work through. Um, not really the best 
showing in the first group stage really against Porter. Lucky to finish first there. Could may, may say lucky to get through here, but um, I think the results against Dynamo Kiev, especially the first one at home, was enough enough really to uh, warrant their place in the quarterfinals. We go to Group A now. Barcelona they'd endured a, a bit of a slow start. They they were probably the form team of the first group stage. The the draw in Berlin with Hertha, but then then they they refine their form. We're still in November and December for these first two group phases. First two second group phase matches, let's not forget. Barcelona tear through all the opposition on the other side of the break. 5-0 against Sparta, 6 beyond Porto in the two matches there. They finish on 16 points, which is the best by far in the second group phase. Best by far it would have been in the first group phase too when the field was more diluted. The form has to have them genuinely as contenders and Louis van Gaal really... Um, Really does love this competition, doesn't he? Anyway, um, who would join them? It was, it was anyone's game, really. In Porto, they do they do show that little bit of quality. They beat Sparta and Hertha Berlin 3-0 on aggregate and in successive matches, and that would be enough, really. Um, they did need a point to um, to be sure of it in Berlin, but won 1-0 to progress. And they're one of the... I would call Porto the weakest team in... or one of the weakest teams in the quarterfinal. Barcelona, though, they, they have a really really good chance. The continuation of Cruyff's, Cruyff's dream in the late 80s, early 90s, the 92 final could be uh, realised again, could be pushed along further down the line, courtesy of another Dutch coach in Louis van Gaal, who let's not forget has history in this competition as well, when he won the uh, the Champions League in 1995. We'll go to the final group stage. Final group that we're going to cover. It feels like there's a lot of groups here. This is our 12th. This is Group D. And this, let's be honest, this could go just about anywhere. Although Feyenoord didn't really impress in the first group stage, got through it, just about squeaked through, winning one game, which, I mean, they didn't get beat, but they only won one game anyway. They've got to contend with Chelsea, got to contend with Lazio, got to contend with Marseille, all of which very, very dangerous, as several teams found out in the first group phase. Although Feyenoord do throw a bit of a... Um, Bit of a spanner in the works. Um, impressive win against Marseille. Marseille beat Chelsea thanks to a an unbelievable Robert Perez goal. There's that big shop window opening up, as I discussed earlier, in terms of big clubs coming, big unknown really quantities going to uh, English football. We'll see him a lot more in our sister podcast, The Barclays, in a couple of years. So stick around for that one. Anyway, Lazio, they'd won at the Velodrome in Marseille, but they hadn't really got going until the... Until the reverse fixture and and what a performance it was, what a solo performance it was really from um, Simone Inzaghi, current Inter Milan manager, of course. He scored not one, not two, not three, but four goals to crush Marseille 5-1, eliminating Marseille from the competition. So the French club really, both Marseille and Bordeaux floundered when the going gets uh, a, bit, a little bit tougher in the second group phase and... Uh, Bordeaux, I didn't think, would um, be able to hang. I thought Marseille may have a little bit more in the tank. I remember watching a couple of their, their games back in the day and thinking they're a very, very strong team. Of course, William Gallas as well, um, another player in that big shop window as a result of this. And we spoke about Roy Keane as a little goal machine. Dennis Wise from the same position as well. He gets the winner in a 1-0 win over Marseille. Second goal in a 3-1 win in Eindhoven. We're not really spoken about Chelsea, but they're a bit of a dark horse too. They've not been in the Champions League at all. We know they're a great cup team, for example. Vial is still there. They've won the Cup Winners' Cup, the League Cup, FA Cup. We know they can do it in a cup competition. And top of this group going into the last match day, 10 points ahead of Lazio, but unfortunately is um, Simone Inzaghis and Isam Hailovic who score at Stamford Bridge to... Um, overturn that Gus Poye goal, which means Lazio are atop of the group. But regardless, they're both in the same half of the draw. You've got Valencia versus Lazio. You've got Barcelona versus Chelsea. Now, Chelsea and Lazio probably aren't the favourites to win those, but the two ties that really could go one way or the other. Alternatively, the other half of the draw is probably, well, it's easily the stronger half. Real Madrid. Bayern Munich, Manchester United, and Porto. Let's put Porto to one side, no disrespect, but Real Madrid, you've got the 98 winners. 
Manchester United have got the 99 winners. Bayern Munich, you've got the 99 finalists. So chock full of experience there. Meanwhile, Valencia, Lazio, Barcelona and Chelsea may be good enough in terms of Lazio and Chelsea to win Cup Winners' Cups in the not-too-recent past, get to Cup Winners' Cup finals and win them, Barcelona as well. But ultimately, in terms of the Champions League, it's it's a, a distinct step ahead, isn't it, really? And in terms of experience in that respect, the other half of the draw has to be viewed as a, as a lot stronger. Now let's discuss that half of the draw. You've got Real Madrid and Manchester United, a, a, a match really that felt as a... It's one of those games, isn't it? Real Madrid, Manchester United, that is probably the biggest, one of the biggest in world football. Manchester United, Real Madrid, yeah, probably in the top five teams ever. But one that's never been a final of a European Cup. It's been a semi-final on occasion, quarter-final on a couple of occasions here in the 2000s. And a bit like the Classico, never been a final, one of the biggest games in football. Real Madrid, Bayern, that's never been a final. Um one of the biggest games, really, that we've seen in years gone by. This felt like a final. Remember bricking it as a young Man United fan, now seven. Um, Nil-nil in the first league, bit of a feeling-out process there. United still favourites, really, obviously being European holders and English bias in terms of bookmakers will do that to you um, as well. Uh, so that combined, they were overwhelming favourites and still run away best club in England by this stage would be for some time. In terms of European football, I think we've got the three best teams in European football in this sort of five-year stint here that we're it's sort of in the middle of Real Madrid, Man United and Bayern Munich all in the same half of the draw. And Roy Keane scores again, but unfortunately, it's in the wrong half, wrong wrong half, wrong net. Roy Keane puts for his own goal haphazard. Um, really does change the outlook. At, this is in second leg at Old Trafford. It gives Real Madrid the away goal. Um, leaves Man United chasing a little bit and then what I can only just be described as um, the Fernando Redondo show in the second half um, of course Raul curls an absolutely inch perfect second goal which kills a tie stone dead really because United need three goals never going to get them against Real Madrid in one half um, let alone 35 minutes of football and then Fernando Redondo does Henningberg with that back heel um, if you've not seen it go check it out it's on the same patch of land as Dimitar Berbatov did that little flick in a, an infinitely lesser match against West Ham um, some decade later. Um, as good a skill as that, to put it in that sort of bracket um, and on a bigger stage, which infinitely makes it better. Um, assists Raul for number three and that's game over really. And needing four goals. United get one from Beckham, get one from Skulls. But ultimately the, the defence has ended and it's Real Madrid who are now bestowed as favourites, I would say. They would meet Bayern Munich. And of course, it's Paolo Sergio. His importance cannot be stressed enough. 80th minute equaliser in Porto opens a scoring in Munich as well. And Bayern Munich think they're through. Porto was a 1-1 draw in Munich. It's a 1-0 lead by that point. And of course, who else? Mario Jardel scored in the first leg, scored an infinite amount of goals in the second group stage, in the first group stage as well. Had to be Mario Jardel, 90th minute. It's his 10th goal of the tournament. He's He would jointly hold that golden boot with Raul and Paolo Sergio, I think. Um, but then um, you think your game's going to extra time, 2-1-1 draws, and then Thomas Linker scores the winner in stoppage time, on stop on top of the stoppage time. Bayern Munich again, just about squeaking through. Now, sets it up absolutely perfectly for Real Madrid, Bayern Munich in the semi-finals, doesn't it? Bayern Munich should have that psychological advantage over Real Madrid. Absolutely battered them in the second group phase. Their form is slightly slightly on the wane as we get into the semi-final. Meanwhile, Real Madrid have moved up into that gear that we were discussing earlier. Much more, Nicolas Anelka is now in contention really now after a bit of a slow start he'd been absolutely battered for his slow start in Madrid as you'd expect from a a public who want to see their 24 million pound striker score more than two or three goals Anelka really is crucial here he's the difference in this game because it is a it's a 3-2 aggregate win Anelka scores two goals he scores the opener to settle the nerves really early on in the Bernabeu as well and then 
equalisers cast and Yanka's goal back in the reverse fixture to make it 3-1 Nagru, but with that away goal, Bayern need three goals. They only get one through Giovanni Elber as well, and uh, Bayern's nearly 30-year wait continues. It will be Real Madrid in the final in Paris, not Bayern Munich. And in the what we're going to call the weaker half of the draw, we've got probably if this happened, if I was, if the coverage was the same as it is today, and I was my age, what I am now, 29 in 2000, I would be watching Valencia Lazio all day long. One of those ties that just looks absolutely mouthwatering. It may not be the biggest tie of the quarterfinals. You know, Real Madrid Manchester United was definitely that. Chelsea Barcelona maybe as well bit further along, but Valencia Lazio, two equally pitted teams, two teams full of superb individual talent, two teams that you know probably won't win it, and it's just superb football, isn't it? Um, probably one of the greatest starts to a tie in Champions League history for me is Valencia's at the Mestalla. Angula, Gerard Lopez, 2-0 inside four minutes. Um, yeah, you very rarely see that, especially in a knockout stage game, but you've got Simone Inzaghi hitting back, Gerard Lopez would complete hat-trick and it does look as though Marcelo Salas's goal late on reduces the deficit a bit to 4-2 you think going back to Rome two goal lead I mean it's I think it's a pretty flaky lead coming back to what would be a bear pit in the Olympico but then it's Claudio Lopez with a stoppage time goal a fifth for Lazio which really it kills kills Lazio's dreams one save of Veron does score for Lazio to win the tie 1-0 in the second leg, but it's just too little too late. And that that stoppage time goal, although it only makes a two-goal win, a three-goal three win, it changes the psychological look on the game absolutely completely. And Lazio going into the game that bit more downtrodden. And if it's two goals, Lazio are peppering with the last 28 minutes that, um, that goal to make it 2-0 and essentially get them through to the semi-finals. But alas... Lazio, that is the furthest Lazio ever got in the Champions League as well. And at the very first time of asking as well, really. But we'll go to probably the most dramatic, easily the most dramatic quarterfinal of the lot. We've got Chelsea, we've got Barcelona. Chelsea have an absolutely manic spell, a bit like they would a few years on in, in a similar knockout phase tie against Barcelona. Gianfranco Zola on half an hour. Tori Andre Flo, 34th minute, 38th minute, really take the game to Barcelona. Three goals in eight minutes. We've spoken a lot about Dennis Weiser's exploits in front of goal but Tori Andre Flo has come up with these little under the radar goals crucial absolutely crucial scores too here which really make a fist of it for Chelsea in this game he's been absolutely magnificent Figo Rivaldo Luis Enrique they've got all the big players Lou Van Gaal and his total football system continuation of Johan Cruyff as we discussed earlier don't have an answer until Luis Figo scores what looks like a consolation but going back to Valencia Lazio the two-goal lead turned into a three-goal lead. We've got the opposite of this here. Three-goal lead turned into a two-goal lead. Now Barcelona have the impetus to go back. And we've seen Barcelona again and again in this campaign destroy teams when they get to the camp now. Fiorentina, they put four past them. They put four past Arsenal as well. Arsenal finished miles ahead of Chelsea in the uh, league this season. And um, although Chelsea do have a bit more European experience and the Arsenal team do have a bit, um, you would say, cup experience, I would say as well. Um, despite Arsenal winning the double in 98, Chelsea also did a double in 98, <laughs> two cups. So there you go. And Barcelona, the destroying arm, it's not really destroying, although the scoreline is 5 1 in the uh, second leg. You have to account for the 30 minutes extra time, you do have to account for the absolute misfortune that Chelsea have with the free kick deflection from Rivaldo in the 24th minute at the camp now. And then you've got Figo with what a huge sickener for Chelsea. Stroke of halftime, 2-0, and 2-0 obviously means Barcelona were going through. But as we said earlier, Tori Andre Flo, again, coming through with these goals that, that on the face of it, <laughs> turning a two-goal loss into a 2-1 defeat but ultimately that is the difference between what would be a semi-final and a and a final and a quarter-final exit for Chelsea and again it's fortune again 83rd minute Danny Garcia just gets a little touch on a free kick 
finds its way past it would have been Ed Dehoy, I think, in the Chelsea goal. And you just look at the two goals, two of the three goals that, that Chelsea conceded in normal time here, and you've just got to feel sorry for them, really. And this isn't a Chelsea team backed by billions and billions and billions of pounds. This is a Chelsea team who've been fairly on the cusp of something domestically in the league, at least. Decent in cups, have to, have to say decent in cups in the past few years. And it's a team that really, in the early 90s, in the late 90s, sorry, before they um, obviously ascended to be one of the bigger teams in England, a team that I probably had a soft spot for in terms of the, the players they had, you know, front and centre, obviously. Gianfranco Zola, um, love Gus Poy as well. Tori Andrew Flo was a favourite of mine as well. Um, yeah, this one, truly sickening, really. But Barcelona then, obviously, with the advantage, with the with the momentum, then they they just win a penalty. Then it's essentially game over. Although, with that penalty from Rivaldo, 4-1, a goal from Chelsea... I mean, almost kills the game, doesn't it? Because then Barcelona would need a couple more goals. Then um, Clivert finishes it off 5-1, makes it look a lot worse than what it was, but with extra time accounted for, I mean, it's truly sickening if you're a Chelsea fan really there in the 99-2000 season. Wouldn't know it yet. They might have thought that might be our only chance to uh, to get this far in a Champions League, but give us a few minutes and uh, give us a few years. We'll uh, We'll get to there innumerable successes in this um, in this tournament that we call Le Grandes Equipes. But it's time for an all-Spanish occasion in the um, in the semi-final, harking back to the days of Barcelona Real Madrid in the 1960s. But, spoiling that, spoiling the El Clasico party we should have had in the final, it's Valencia. Even Maurizio Pellegrino, future Southampton manager, wanted a Clasico finally. Puts through his own net to make it uh, 1-1 and give Barcelona the away goal. But it's guys commending it over penalty edges. Valencia ahead. It's Claudio Lopez, another. He's unbelievable in turning a two-goal lead into a three-goal lead in the first leg of a knockout stage tie. He does it again, 92nd minute winner this time, as opposed to a 91st minute goal and that just shifts the entire balance for the second leg away from home. Mendia scores a goal at the um, Camp Nou to essentially kill that and it means Barcelona need four goals to take it to extra time. They do score two goals fairly late on. Frank de scores a pretty good, pretty decent finish um, for uh, the equaliser there but with 12 minutes to go, Barcelona need didn't three more goals that's never going to happen is it unfortunately um, for them and we are robbed of the Clasico final and it means that them dark horses though that team that chocked full of talent that you didn't think we we're going to get there they're in the final it's Valencia in their first ever first ever uh, Champions League final of course their first European final since the Cup Winners Cup final of 1980 Arsenal fans will know what I'm talking about with that one when they beat Arsenal on penalties that time round. This time, though, it's Real Madrid. Setting up in this game, Valencia playing scarcely believable attacking 4-4-2, the way they play it. Kili Gonzalez on the right, guys Comendieta on the left, Gerard Lopez centrally. Real Madrid, hard to discern their shape, really. It's a 4-3-3 on a piece of paper, probably more of a 4-3-2-1. You've got Ivan Campo, Steve McManaman, and Fernando Redondo in the midfield too. You've got... Raul and Elka Morientes, any variation of those up front. Um, Ica Casillas as well starts for uh, Real Madrid. Real do have the better start. McManaman almost squeaking one in. Um, and for those people who uh, complain that he's always on Champions League commentary and always on BT Sports commentary, it's probably because he's done it at the highest level here. Um, although it might not sound like he has, um, but he squeaks one in. In the second half, making it 2-0. Um, scissor kick, Stade de France. Zinedine Zidane, eat your heart out. Um, a superb, I make fun of it all the time, but it's a superb goal, not talked about. It doesn't look as flamboyant as Zidane's in two years on, but it's a scissor kick from the edge of the area. It's because it takes a bounce. It's because it loops. It sort of falls in as opposed to just soars. But it, that, that essentially kills the game for Valencia. They'd already taken a 1-0 lead. Nicola and Elka vitally again doesn't get an assist or doesn't score anything like that but he recycles the ball 
gifts it to Michel Salgado. He crosses it in Fernando Morientes on the back post. And in a in a season where Raul, Christian Carimbo, etc., Fernando Redondo have all had the headlines, it's an Elka, it's Morientes, McManaman coming to the fore. Right in the latter stages when they needed the semi-finals with an Elka, the final with Morientes, with McManaman. And then in eerie shades of um, Emmanuel Petit's goal in the 1998 World Cup final, Raul finds himself at the end of the game, the whole half to himself, except I think, I'm not sure if, I'm pretty sure it's on the opposite half, but regardless, Raul finds himself, the whole Valencia half to himself. All he needs to do, fire it off, 3-0, and he does so. Classic counter-attack goal, 15 minutes to play, Valencia down and out. The favourites, after beating the previous favourites, Man United in the quarterfinals, win the Champions League. And Real Madrid, that means that Real Madrid are through to the uh, to the Champions League the following year because they wouldn't have been if they wouldn't have won this um, regardless. Next week, we'll be taking a little bit of a break from Le Grandes Equipes, from the Barclays. We'll be bringing you something a little bit different, a return to Obscure Footballer. Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to support the channel, we are over there on YouTube. We should have hit by now a thousand subscribers. So thank you very much for that. Should have a few Patreon teasers up on the YouTube page if we have hit that milestone by the time you listen to this. So get yourself over there if you like that Patreon stuff that we put on the uh, on the old YouTube there. Have a dally on to uh, patreon.com forward slash what if football. One pound a month, 4p per piece of content there as well if you want a little bit of a peek behind the curtain there. Anyway, we'll be back next week with a, a seventh round of Obscure Footballer. Add a few more names into the Obscure Hall of Fame. But until then, thank you very much for listening and see Network.